Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. We're about a dozen episodes into Cocktail College now, and like any quality curriculum, we should probably take a moment to reinforce some of the things we've learned so far. For me as the host and a lover of cocktails, I'm constantly struck by the wealth of knowledge of our guests, not just on their chosen drink, but mixology in general. I found that in so many episodes, there's just been so much to take in. So before we continue with our cocktail education, think of this as a kind of audio cliff notes from the season so far filled with incredible tips and tricks and insight into the minds of America's best bartenders. Listeners, let's get into it. First up is Eric Alperin and the Old Fashioned. And the theme of this lesson is measurements. Now, when we think about cocktails and measurements, normally we think about two ounces of this spirit a couple of bar spoons of a different ingredient. But when Eric spoke about the build of his old fashioned, he went beyond that. And measurements went into things like the size of ice and how that impacts the glassware he uses. He got granular and discussed the size of sugar cubes. And we even explored how a given and accepted measurement isn't always straightforward. I.e., what is a dash of bitters? You know, I, I, I think just a recipe, we miss so much of the breath and the space in between. Like, you know, when you throw a sugar cube into that nine ounce glass, now I'm just going to walk you through kind of like the, the recipe for our old fashioned yeah. at the varnish. But you have like, you got a nine ounce glass, like nine ounce. That's really important to us. Now, sure, you can use a, a larger glass if that's all you have at home. But, you know, for us, it's what will fit. Um, our our particular rocks of ice and we have block ice and mm-hmm. it's um, you know two and a half inches tall by uh, an inch and three quarters on uh, uh, wide and long and uh, on each wide and deep mm-hmm. and so we choose the glass specifically then what is the sugar cube that we're dropping in there we're dropping in a domino dot sugar cube Sasha was such an advocate of the right amount of sugar in an old-fashioned and we always did it with sugar cubes and Domino dot, the way they cut the sugar loaf is smaller than what they do with like a C&H sugar cubes. Now, listen, I'm not saying that I like Domino dot and the amount of sugar in that particular cut of the sugar loaf uh, Mm -hmm. compared to the C&H. So I agree with Sasha and that's what we do in house. Other places don't. They use the C&H and they're a bit bigger. But those details really matter. So then you're throwing Mm -hmm. in that Domino dot sugar cube. And uh, and then hitting it with uh, with Angostura bitters, and we use uh, a Japanese bitters bottle because when you when you look at recipes, a lot of the time it doesn't talk about how bitters come out of a traditional bitters bottle. Jeez. Um, yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you know, I mean, it's the same thing with knives in the kitchen, man. I mean, there's a certain knife to cut fish; otherwise, you're going to hack the meat up, right? Yep. Right, and 100%. there's a certain way way to go about. Like I'm just speaking because I have friends who are in kitchens, and I've watched this a lot. But um, all those, the way you slice, the angle, are you going long ways or, 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 or short ways on, on the meat? Uh, it's also important. So again, Angostura bitters for us lives in a Japanese bitters bottle. And the way that Japanese bitters bottle is shaped is that it has um, 
you know, it's it's bulbous at the bottom, and then it has this uh, this piston mm-hmm. that the bitters fly through, and then go through this particular dasher that um, that basically shoots out three. When you shoot out three dashes from a Japanese bitters bottle, that is, and I think we have Don Lee and Alex Day to thank for this for you know their their uh, <laughs> their research on what yeah. a perfect dash is, but um, <laughs> that is. Um, uh, that is one dash. So three dashes from a Japanese bitters bottle is one one dash if you can get it correctly from an Angostura bottle. Now, the thing about Angostura bottles is that, you know, when, when it's full and you do a dash, it's too full. So you didn't get the right dash. But And then there's a point in the bitters bottle where there's enough air and enough liquid where you get the right dash. But it can be it can it can be really uh, 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 hazardous if you have not enough bitters in the bottle and you go and you do a dash and then turning the bottle over all of a sudden just creates too much force and all of a sudden you put in too much bitters into the bottom of your glass. So that's why um, we use the Japanese bitters bottles for consistency in the dashing. Hey Siri, go on Amazon and order me a Japanese bitters bottle. Thanks, Eric. Next up, we have Abigail Gulo on the Manhattan. And Abigail arrives with some sage advice for professionals and home bartenders on the order of making cocktails specifically, which is something I worry about a lot when I'm making martinis at home, even if I'm not a pro bartender. Abigail also shares some tips on how to make that process even easier if you're hosting for a crowd. Well, it's still a huge issue, of course, people getting their drinks fast. Um, You know, it's how we make money. It's Mm -hmm. how our businesses make money. Um, And uh, the guest expectations are that they get their drinks quickly as well. And you want to get that drink out there so they can order another one. Um, So I approach it, I think, most importantly for speed, which is when you get a Manhattan in and there are other drinks on there, you make that Manhattan first. Mm-hmm. In in the gl- mixing glass with the ice, and then you make all the other drinks, mm-hmm. and then you stir it and pour it. It's it's resting on the ice. It's not getting over diluted. You know, you're not agitating it. It's not getting. It's there's no way it's going to get over diluted while it's just sitting there in the ice. But it is getting colder, which is what's important. That that drink take on that smooth, velvety, cold texture. So that to me is really really important. Is that you get that drink out. Uh, built first in the glass, then make your other rounds. And then so you have all the drinks kind of ready at the same time. Um, but that one, if if you have time, you know, to to let it sit, let it sit, man, get and get, the, gr- get that other work done. You know, when you watch old movies, you know how they have like a martini pitcher or like a Manhattan pitcher? Mm-hmm. They make it like they make it by the pitcher for their guests. Those drinks are just sitting in the pitcher they're not being i mean they have sometimes they have a stir stick just to kind of stir it around but they're Mm -hmm. just sitting on ice and then they just keep adding booze to it as the night goes on (laughs) (laughs) you know and so it doesn't get over diluted and then they're pouring out little little martini glasses little manhattan glasses those Mm -hmm. glasses are are small that's why you know, people had three martini lunches because the glasses used to be really, really small. <laughs> you just keep it cold on a pitcher. And mm-hmm. of course, you know, I, I don't know why I don't see this more now. I mean, everyone's doing frozen martinis. There's If you're batching for a party, there's no reason why you can't do a frozen Manhattan. Mm-hmm. 
you know, batch it, dilute it ahead of time, stick it in the freezer, and then when you're ready to pour, just pour it out. Batch, dilute, freeze, pour, repeat. Thanks, Abigail. Next up, we have Neil Bodenheimer and the Sazerac. And this was an episode I got so much great feedback on from listeners. Thank you for that. And just on the detail that Neil went into on the history of the drink and also his preparation of it. Now, Neil's gone into as much detail as anyone on his search for the ideal Sazerac recipe, which is fair enough, given that his operation uh, is in New Orleans. And at this point in the clip, he's already told us that he's using an atomizer to mist the inside of the glass with herb saint. You can also do it with absinthe. Now he goes on to talk about the lemon twist garnish. And this thing blew my mind. Um, and then you're going to cut your lemon peel and you're going to express, you know, from about three to four inches away on the outside of the cocktail glass. And that's not to say that a little bit of that can't go in the cocktail, but your goal is to put as much of the oil on the outside of the glass as possible mm-hmm. because you want it to get on someone's hand. Because yeah. when you put oil on top of a drink, you really, you really are going to drink that within the first two sips. Mm-hmm because it's just going to sit on top of the drink. So we want that lemon oil to really stick around and to stay on your guest your guest or, or your hand. Um, so what we'll do is we'll kind of dab it on different parts of the glass. And that's not like a rub. It's just kind of taking this like oil-laden peel and trying to get as much of that oil on the glass as possible. And then we'll kind of roll the peel Um and, and, the, and there's a tradition of that in New Orleans. So you roll the peel and then you put and you mount it on the on the edge. That's not that, look, fate intervenes. Sometimes they fall in, sometimes they fall out, like big deal. Mm-hmm. But you know, you have, you know, once again, this peel that's full of full of full of oil, full of 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 oil and acid. And if you that peel goes in the drink, that drink will be lighter and brighter with a little more acid. And if that drink goes out, it's richer and rounder. And so we really think that that should be a guest uh, decision unless, of course, fate intervenes and it falls in or out. I love that idea of leaving it up to fate to decide how my drink is garnished. Wonderful stuff, Neil. Next up, we have the Ramos Gin Fizz with Lucinda Sterling. And in this one, Lucinda echoes the sentiments of many people during our stock questions at the end of the show when talking about the importance of the jigger. The jigger. Um, Because there are so many different styles of jiggers out there, this is really important. If you use a a Japanese jigger, Mm -hmm. you have to fill all the way up so you get the... um, Meniscus. Meniscus. And meniscus can go either way. It It can be negative or it can be, you know, over the top. I think you're going to get a lot of waste, you know, as a bartender and a bar owner. I don't like that. Um, I want to be pretty exact. I like my graduated jiggers. And, um, of course, you have to find one that is actually on point. So I gra- I buy um, graduated cylinders from McMaster.com. And I actually measure out each of the jiggers to make sure that they're on point. Um, that way you never have to worry about over or under meniscusing pouring I'm not missing <laughs> oh, that too but um, you're never really gonna Sasha said this 
you're never going to really ruin a drink if you add too much alcohol. Mm-hmm. But if you add too much sugar or if you add too much citrus, you might have an imbalanced cocktail. Um, obviously, old fashions can never have too much bourbon. <laughs> but uh, if you have too much sugar or lime in your daiquiri, it'll throw it off and you'll be able to taste that. I can honestly say I have never complained about a drink having too much alcohol. Next up, it's the Gibson with Megan Dorman. And she approaches one of my favorite subjects, which is stirring. And you probably noticed that I'm always trying to get some little tips out of our bartenders on their particular technique and often misassigning some. Um, During this one, I love the way that Megan describes the art of stirring. And I took a lot away from her process, especially also the order in which she builds the drink with the ingredients, which may seem obvious to some, but then again, probably not to others. So I call stirring the ballet of bartending. Ooh, uh, I like that. Because I think it should be one of those things where it's, it's quite elegant, you get a great result, but when you're really good and your technique is good, you don't actually see the effort. You know, you can still have a conversation over the bar. Mm-hmm. And, oh, oh, this beautiful martini's done. Wow. Barely even noticed what was happening. Um, <laughs> when I'm training bartenders, though, I kind of work a little backwards, as in this is the result we want. Yeah. How you get there, I'm not going to tell you 10 seconds or 12 seconds or exactly how long to shake because it is a little different per person. What we're trying to get to is this result, yeah. this over and over and over. So I, th- I think it can vary a little bit for people. But for me, when I'm making a Gibson, first, I'm going to start with our less our small affordable ingredients so that would be our onion brine first mm-hmm. in case i mess up i'm not going to throw out a bunch of tank gray tin yeah <laughs> so i'm going to start with that then i'm going to do the one ounce of the bianco vermouth then i'm going to do two ounces of the tank gray tin in a mixing glass which is also a little bit cold not freezing but from the fridge mm-hmm. i always do four whole cold draft cubes and three cracked ones okay Stir for about 10 seconds. And that's me. That's how I get the yeah. result I want. And then that way I can see it. I pretty much know every time when it's done. Um, we have a frozen cocktail glass for it. Coop that chilled onion on a nice toothpick. Mm-hmm. Strain it out. No no, flight in it, no floating icebergs or anything like right. that. Nice, uh, beautiful, cold Gibson. That right there is one of those many instances for me where a bartender has just finished describing their drink and I want to have one in hand straight away at that moment. Don't know about you listening. Next up, we have Toby Cicchini and the Gimlet and a lesson that I need to constantly remind myself as a drinker and when I'm making cocktails and that's don't be afraid of dilution. And Toby's speaking about this within the context of his Lime Cordial, which he rediscovered or reinvented for his historic gimlet. Some people, some people get very a little bit hinky about that. People say, "Ugh, you're supposedly making a real gimlet, but it's not even up." And I think I've searched and searched and searched for a proper spec on how the gimlet is made. There's n- nobody can point to an absolute here. Mm-hmm. I see it in in all kinds of different ways. You can certainly have it up, and lots of people order it up. But we serve it on the rocks because it's so in your face. It's such an intense drink. It's punchy. Yeah, it is is really grabby and it's really 
I mean, the Italian have, have this great word, agrodolce, which mm-hmm. means sweet and sour. I mm-hmm. mean, it's so sweet, sour, but it's also just so, so intense mm-hmm. that I feel like it benefits from that dilution. Obviously, it gets diluted from shaking, maybe 20 to 26% or something like that. But if you if you pour it then over ice, you can get something like a 30% dilution on that. And I feel like it needs that to open up and become palatable. I can't... But that makes so much more sense or sounds so much more compelling than someone saying, yeah, well, you need to set me five minutes ago saying, yeah, you need to you need to serve this up because, you know, it's this style of drink or whatever. No, you've, you've thought about that, you've tasted it, and that's that's your preference. Some things are just too intense up. And I think uh, since the, you know, what we call the cocktail renaissance, say, in the, you know, turn of the, turn of the, of the century, um, and that, that was the mode of doing everything, like shaking it very little time on large ice and keeping the concentration, keeping that strength, you know, as little dilution as possible. And that is completely anathema to the way I think. I, I want a lot of dilution, a lot of water to open up a cocktail and make it palatable and make those aromas like volatile and just make it more user-friendly that so many drinks are way too concentrated for me. One person who loves to wax lyrical on dilution is Sebastian Hamilton Mudge and his drink, the pink gin, I can tell you about right now. It's gin and Angostura bitters stirred. It's simple. One thing that I did take away from his episode, though, and found absolutely fascinating was the concept of the drink being served in or out, which is a term I'd never come across before in my life. Legend has it, it was, a, it was for, they, they drank it for uh, seasickness. Um, and it also created this phrase that we, we were comfortable with the martini thinking about how dry you'd like it. You yeah. know, I'd like a dry martini. How, how dry would you like it? So how much vermouth are you going to have in your dry martini? And then with the pink gin, you would ask in or out. So if you, if you find an old school bartender in New York uh, or, or in London and you ask, you order a pink gin and, and just straight up say a uh, pink gin, please. Those that know their stuff will ask you in or out. And this is a throwback to whether you were an officer or a sailor and okay. officers were basically allowed as much as they liked. They had their rations. So they would take the Angostura and they would add it to their glass with their gin and they kept all the Angostura in their glass. Mm-hmm. Um, the poor old sailors didn't have access to as much. So they would add it to their, uh, their, their, their cup, they'd swell it around and then they'd tip out the excess into their buddy and on and on. So they would just put a coating of the bitters. And so it was, it was out. So you either drank it in, which was a heavy amount of Angostura, or out, which was just a rinse and, wow. and flicking the excess out. So how do you take your pink gin? Personally, I think I'm an in guy, but I'm still exploring. Anyway, last up, we have Simon Ford and the gin and tonic. And as I mentioned in the episode, this is a drink that I've, you know, struggled with over time that's basically because i don't like tonic water but after talking with simon and in particular hearing his approach to garnishing the drink i'm ready to give it another go you know something i actually often do with fords because fords is made with grapefruit lemon and orange is i actually do a wheel of all three of those citruses and i think that the reason i do that for fords is because that's what's in the in the um i guess in the in the recipe but that's what I liked about the Spanish style mm-hmm. because 
if you sort of take it, take the art seriously of garnishing a Spanish G and T, you're looking at the flavors within the gin, within the gin first, and then you're pairing it with the different garnishes that you can put in, mm-hmm. or picking garnishes that accentuate those flavors. You know, something that's already in the gin, and just like you know, turning it up a notch. You mm-hmm. know, I have always loved putting just one star anise into my Spanish gin and tonic because the great thing about Spanish gin and tonic is it lasts a while. Mm -hmm. So the flavors do infuse into the overall drink and the drink starts to develop and change and the star anise just adds this sort of refreshing refreshing nature to it, you know. So I like that and I do like putting things like cinnamon in it, things that will not automatically be noticed by the palate but as I go on they start to soak in and the flavors start to come out. The star anise might be a personal favorite and I do like putting herbs in like mint and citrus yeah. because it just the whole thing's a experience of pop yeah it makes it pop it's a whole let's be refreshing mm-hmm. and mint says I'm gonna refresh your drink you know so <laughs> I, I, I like that you sort of by, by by nature of making a ginny tonic at the Spanish style you get to <laughs> you get to essentially you know have creative license over your gin mm. and tonic and I think that's a lot of fun Simon Ford there refreshing our podcast feeds and that's it folks we are done with the recap and ready to continue on our cocktail education journey together thanks a lot for tuning in until next time okay that was a lot of info but here's the good news Every single episode of VinePair's Cocktail College is also published on VinePair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe, and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, VinePair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout-out to everyone on the VinePair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Brinberg, art director at VinePair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.